0: So, of course, as you know, I'll be finishing up the lesson on God's law that Enroll started, being that Pastor Andre is in Texas, hopefully doing doing very, very well and bringing back a very large tithe for us. So, is that my timer? Now, over the last few weeks, Pastor Andre has been teaching us regarding Our problem as it pertains to setting up our own standard rather than submitting to God's standard. Since the garden, man has been trying to be wise in their own eyes. Since the garden, man has been trying to decide for himself what is right and what is wrong. Now, the result of that has been many different nations and people groups setting up for themselves their own ethical standard. The problem that we've seen is many different nations and people groups setting up for themselves their own ideas of religion, religious practice, and religious worship to determine how to make themselves holy. Now, the fact that we are created in the image of God, man will always have a moral and a religious bent. We will always believe that there are such things as a right and a wrong. And those who believe who don't believe that there is a right and wrong, believe that they are right and you are wrong. Since we will always believe in this, man will always try to follow some set standard for themselves in society. This is evident. Apart from God's revelation, however, man setting up their own standard usually doesn't end up in some sort of utopia as they envision. Now, this is apparent from just looking at the scriptures, but also just examining society around you. Anytime when people try to set up their own idea of justice and goodness. Because man seeking to be wise in their own eyes doesn't typically end with true justice, true equality, true righteousness being executed. I mean, how can it be? I mean, we're polluted with sin. And as a result of that, that completely corrupts our own self-understanding of what's right and what's wrong. Even before the fall and before man becoming corrupt in sin, there was an inability to ultimately know what was right and wrong in and of themselves. This is why God had to tell them what they may eat and what they may not eat. Now, that being said, God gives to us through his word, his standard for us to uphold. That standard is known as God's law. Over the upcoming weeks, Lord willing, we'll be spending time going over God's law. What do we mean by his law? Our responsibility towards keeping it. Those things required and forbidden in them and much, much more. Since we're going to be going over all of that over the next couple of weeks, what I want to do this week is to break down God's law into three categories or divisions itself. And the reason why I want to do that today is so that we don't fall into the trap that you see sometimes some non-Christians or even some Christians fall into where either their assumption is that none of God's law is relevant for us today or that all of God's law is. Now, before we break down God's law, we need to review something that I taught a while back, which is going to help us rightly understand God's law. And that's God's covenant with man. So let's go back in time to my lesson series as it pertains to God's covenants. So if you remember in our confession of faith, chapter seven, it's the chapter dealing with God's covenant with man. Section one of chapter seven says this, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they can never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Because of the fact that we are men and God is God, God has to condescend himself to us. Yes, remember, we do have those communicable attributes that we share with God, His being, His wisdom, His power, His holiness, His justice, His goodness and His truth. But remember that there are those incommunicable attributes: God's affinity, His eternality, His immutability, or unchangeab- um, unchangeableness. And those incommunicable attributes make it impossible for us independently to know God's will for us as well as our duties towards him and others. So how God chooses to condescend himself, or in other words, to bring himself down to us and reveal his will for us, is through those covenants that we learned about a few months ago. Now, just by way of review, I want you to remember that you know within, the, um, within those covenants, remember, we said that there are basically three essential elements. If you recall, there were the, the contracting parties, so the people involved, those promises given, and then those stipulations or requirements. Now, if you recall, when we studied God's covenant with man, we noted first and foremost that there was an overarching covenant, the covenant of redemption. And if you remember, that covenant of redemption was that overarching covenant or agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, made before the world was created, where the Father sets apart a people for whom Christ, who was sent by the Father, would be the head and redeemer of. Christ, in turn, would do all that was necessary to secure the redemption of that elect people the Holy Spirit being sent by the Father and the Son goes and testifies about Christ and applies that work of redemption to those chosen by the Father. That's that overarching covenant that we see the scriptures talk about in the book of Ephesians, I think is a perfect example of that. And then underneath that overarching covenant, there were two covenants that involve us, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The covenant of works, if you remember, being that covenant that was made in the garden with Adam acting as our federal head, where life was promised to Adam and his posterity upon the condition of perfect and personal obedience, encapsulated in the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we know what happened. Enro talked about it. Jason, in his lesson on um, the fall of man, talked about it as well. Adam fell; he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and as a result, man plunged into that estate of sin and misery. Not too long after Adam fell, God establishes another covenant—the covenant of grace. We see that in seed form in Genesis chapter three, when He promises to send the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman to crush the seed of the serpent itself. And within that covenant of grace, what we mean is that gracious agreement between the offended God and the offending elect sinner through Jesus Christ, who in this covenant is our federal head, in which God promises salvation through faith in Christ. And the sinner accepts this believingly, promising a life of faith and obedience. It's this covenant of grace, if you recall, that we see playing itself out throughout the rest of scripture, that we see in seed form in Genesis chapter three and being expanded upon more and more throughout the rest of the Bible. Now, in it being expanded, one of the things that it's important to keep in mind is that when we see this covenant playing itself out, we see it, generally speaking, playing itself out under two administrations, the old administration and the new administration Some people like to call it old covenant, new covenant, or whatnot, I prefer old administration, new administration, just so that we understand that it's within the umbrella of the covenant of grace itself. Now, how those two administrations are distinguished had to do with the coming of the federal head, the substance, Jesus Christ himself. Remember, with the old administration, everything that was happening was pointing to Christ, whereas within the new administration, Everything that we do is looking back at Christ. Our confession in chapter, in chapter 7, section 5, puts it in this way as it pertains to the old administration. It says, under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had four remissions of sins and eternal salvation. And it's called the Old Testament. So again, all the sacrifices and everything were instructed to build the elect up in faith to the Messiah, Christ, by whom they had the remission of sins in the new administration. Again, now Christ has been revealed. He has come. He has accomplished what he needed to do. So the divines place this in chapter seven, section six. Under the gospel, When Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. So, although administered differently, the substance in both administrations was all the same. It was always Jesus Christ. So, in other words, the way of salvation in the old and the new never changed. It was always through faith in Christ alone. Now, the reason why I bring all of this up is that as we start to read about God's law in greater detail, you know, it's going to be natural to think, especially when we look at the book of Exodus, for example, you know, we might think, you know, we acknowledge those 10 commandments that we see in Exodus 20. But you know what? There seems to be a lot more commandments and rules that God gives to us. I mean, why aren't we avoiding pork, for example, or shellfish? Why aren't we up in arms about wearing mixed fabrics, about putting fences around our roofs? Aren't those also commandments and rules that God gives to his people as well? How come we're not following them? So we need to understand God's law in light of his covenant with us so that we can properly understand what duty, what our duty to obey truly entails. This is why I'm bringing this up. It's important to understand this. So let's move on now to talk about God's law and the threefold view, the three different divisions itself. You know, within the understanding of God's law given to his people, it can be broken down basically into three categories. You have the ceremonial law, you have the civil law, and you have the moral law. Now we're going to spend the rest of today's um, talking specifically in regards to the ceremonial and the civil, and I'll touch upon the moral, but we're going to spend most of next lesson really diving into the moral law. But let's start first with the ceremonial law. And again, I want you to remember what we learned in regards to God's covenant with us, and especially those two administrations, old and the new. Our confession of faith in chapter 19, section 3, writes this Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel, as a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship. Prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties. The ceremonial laws are those laws given by God to Israel, which involve those sacrifices and those ceremonies that we read about when we look at the Old Testament. The purpose of the ceremonial law was to point towards Christ, and in particular, his work of redemption that he was going to fulfill. So once Christ comes and fulfills his work of redemption, what those sacrifices were pointing to are no longer necessary. Christ completely fulfills them. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read a little bit from from this passage, because I think this really highlights what I'm getting at here. Again, this is Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to start in verse one. The right of Hebrew writes for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of them. Can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. He's talking about those sacrifices that we see the priests performing. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor you have taken pleasure, which are offered according to the law, talking about the ceremonial law, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He's getting at here. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, say the, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So why don't we continue on with the sacrifices, with the ceremonial law? Because Christ has come. What they were pointing to, he accomplished. And being as the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin itself, Only the blood of Christ could truly atone for sin when he comes and actually does what was typified by those sacrifices. There's no longer a need to continue doing them. See, the lamb that was offered up in atonement was not sacrificed because in and of itself it atoned for sin, but because the lamb pointed to the perfect lamb of God who came to take away our sins. The believer's eyes was not to look upon the Lamb as the ultimate source of their salvation, but beyond the Lamb to whom the Lamb was pointing to, Jesus Christ. And in the new administration of the covenant of grace, now that Christ has come and was pierced for our sins, we don't need the sacrifices that were anticipating this work. So as it pertains to the ceremonial law, why don't we continue it? Is it because we're picking and choosing what we want to submit to? No, it's because who they were typifying, who they were pointing to, Christ came. He accomplished the work. And in him accomplishing the work, our sins are atoned for. So thus, we no longer continue and do the ceremonial law. We don't need to offer up a sacrifice of lambs and and, um, and bulls and goats and all of that because Jesus himself offered up himself as a sacrifice once for all time for our sins. So thus, the ceremonial law is not a law that we continue in. Well, what about the civil law? What about that? Well, our confession of faith says this in chapter 19, section four. It says to them also as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. Now, the the civil laws are those laws given by God to Israel, which involves those things that we read about in the Old Testament, such as those specific judicial codes, the dietary restrictions, those mixed fabric type restrictions. The purpose for the civil law was to separate Israel from the rest of the world around them and mark them as distinct. With the work of Christ and the spread of the gospel no longer being tied to one specific nation, those laws which separated them from the rest of the world expired. The church is no longer contained primarily and mainly within the nation of Israel, but now contains people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Turn your Bibles to Acts. We're going to read from Acts chapter 10, the account of Peter and Cornelius. And we'll start in verse 9. Now, excuse me, verse nine. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, why Peter was greatly perplexed in his mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, behold, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well-spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. And let's go on to verse 34, where he gives to them the gospel. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace, Through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, all you yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. The Gentiles were considered unclean, unholy. They were to be avoided. The Jews were not to intermingle with them under the old administration of the covenant of grace. Yet, after the time in which Christ performs his ordained work of redemption, that separation it's no longer necessary. Not because there's no longer a distinction between unbelievers and believers, of course there is, but because the way of salvation is no longer merely for the Jews. In the new administration of the covenant of grace, those people groups who were unclean and therefore were to be avoided are no longer to be considered as such and therefore ought to be sought after and given the gospel. Paul tells us as such in Ephesians 2. He says, starting in verse 11, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who were, who are uncircumcision or called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the human, in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who, listen to this, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. How? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them in both in one body to God through the cross by it having by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing to a holy temple in the Lord and in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. They were once far off. They were once strangers to the covenant of promise, but now through Christ, through the blood of Christ, they have been brought near. So that dividing wall, what separated them no longer separates them. And thus, why those rules, those restrictions that separated Jew from Gentile are no longer in place? Now, the divines make clear that there is a continuance in regards to the general equity of the civil law. Well, what are they talking about? They're talking about the fact that many of in particular, those you know, those civil codes. For example, like the putting of the um the fence around the roof, were founded on the Ten Commandments itself. So the principles that are taught through the Ten Commandments continue on. For example, like with again the fence, put it placing upon the roof. What what was the principle there? Protecting life. That's a sixth commandment principle. But that principle continues on so much in the same way that you are to protect life and do what you can in order to ensure that life isn't harmed on your property and your watch, you're to continue to do the same there. That's what's meant by the general equity. But those things, eating of selfish, eating of pork, mixed fabric, those things that separated, that expired. Why? Because we're no longer separate in that way. Now, let's quickly take a look at the moral law and we'll end Here Again, we're going to spend more time next Lord's Day, but we'll summarize because this is obviously um, part of the totality of God's law. The moral law, when we talk about that, we're talking about those commandments, which we see summarized in the Ten Commandments. They are God's ethical standard for right and wrong. Now, the moral law can be separated into two categories. You got the first category or first table of the law, which is our duties towards God. Those are the first four commandments. And then you have the second category or second table of the law, which contains our duties towards man. Those are commandments five through ten. Now, we saw how with the ceremonial and the civil law, the continuance of them as something to be followed was contingent on whether one was under the old administration before Christ's coming, or the new administration of the covenant of grace. With Christ coming and executing his work of redemption, we saw how they were either fulfilled in Christ, as the ceremonial law was, or they're no longer necessary, as the civil law no longer is. But what about this moral law? Is that something that also expired with Israel, or is fulfilled in Christ? Is that something that we as believers are no longer bound to? To put it plainly, do we still have to keep the Ten Commandments? I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger to meditate on this next Lord's Day, because next Lord's Day, we're going to answer that question. We're going to look exclusively at the moral law and whether it is relevant for us today under the new administration of the covenant of grace. So I want you to think through this, but I want you to remember that we at Verily saw that the previous two divisions of the law aren't because with the ceremonial they've been fulfilled in Christ, or with the civil, they're no longer necessary because that middle wall of partition has been broken down through Christ. So this concludes our lesson for today. Like I said, next Lord's Day and the Lord's Day after that, Lord willing, we're gonna spend our time really diving into the moral law, its implications, its implications, what you know um what our responsibility and our duty is towards